Hello and welcome to The Tally Ho, our podcast all about classic TV show The Prisoner, with me Eason. And me Bex. And we'd like to welcome you to our third in our episode by episode look back at the TV show. Uh, this week we're talking about A, B and C. And in the last few weeks we've um, had a variety of episodes. We did Arrival, we did The Chimes of Big Ben. And in the intermediate weeks we've had some bonus episodes which you should definitely check out where we spoke to filmmaker and author Chris Rodley about his work on the prisoner documentary in my mind which is about not only the show but also patrick mcgowan and the second part which was part of our time for cherry pie and coffee stream about twin peaks which was all about his interest in the work of david lynch we really love to get feedback from people listening and last time we talked about the chimes of big ben and we've had some interesting tidbits of information sent to us by listeners since then so we thought we'd run through a few of those before we crack on with looking at a b and c so last time i talked quite a lot about some of the art that was in the art exhibition that number six puts his uh, abstracts <laughs> carving into and I, I asked if anyone had more information about some of the the pictures that were there and rick davy of the mutual website got in touch to say that some of the paintings in the art exhibition were painted by the children of the production cast in the art department. We also asked about uh, the use of Number 38's tapestry at the very end of the episode when Number 6 is making his escape with Nadia on the raft. Um, we thought it was kind of a strange thing that he would know that a tapestry was going to be produced at the art show and one that you know he would be able to use as a sail for the raft. And uh, Rick again pointed out that actually in the original script, there are lots of hints throughout the episode that number 38 is making some very large tapestry. And indeed, there's a scene at the very end, obviously now cut, which uh, involves number 30 being pretty miffed at the fact that uh, her work is being used um, for number six's purposes later on. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't hanging on his wall like uh, like she thought, but she's still got the work units for it. So, <laughs> you know, swings and roundabouts. And one other thing about the scripts now we mentioned this in our episode with uh, Rob Fairclough during our 50th anniversary episodes but um, the original script books volumes one and two they're really fantastic but obviously they are out of print and they go for insane amounts these days on on eBay etc so yeah there's not really much we can do about it but if anyone was ever interested in in finding out if there was a way to get them back into print either through a Kickstarter or through some other means um, I think there are a lot of people out there who are coming to the show for the first time or just people who've always wanted copies of these things um, because they're really fantastic resources. So it'd be really cool to see if there was a way, if we could help generate enough interest in getting the original scripts back in print. That may come to nothing, but hopefully it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> but on to this week's episode, which is A, B and C. It's the third episode that was broadcast, but as we're going to get into later... It was actually the 11th episode that was in the production run when they were making The Prisoner. We're going to get into discussions about the correct episode order to watch them because there are some connections between this episode and some others that will become clear in due course. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, our usual format. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about uh, the episode itself, what we like, what happens, uh, what kind of things we we see as important um, sort of aspects in the mythology of the prisoner itself. I'm going to go on some tangents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're going to go on some tangents as always. Um, but also, uh, we've got a few things planned uh, at the very end of the episode. So there's a, this is almost like a little 
you know, contents page for what's going to happen. <laughs> We're going to have the episode up front and then a couple of things. Firstly, um, friend of the podcast, Andrew Pixley, got in touch to tell us that the uh, writer of ABNC, Anthony Skeen, actually also uh, sort of reworked this script in an episode of a TV show called Counter-Strike. Uh, I think the episode was called Nocturne. Mm-hmm. And um, that aired in 1969, so a couple of years after The Prisoner. And so we have some thoughts on that, and that's going to come a little bit later on in the episode. And then after that, we've got a special bonus segment where we spoke to Ian Meadows, who is a writer, sound designer, occasional cravat wearer. <laughs> <laughs> He's a, he works on a lot of uh, productions for... Big Finish productions, including he did most of the sound design for the Big Finish versions of The Prisoner that have come out in the last couple of years. They're really wonderful audiobooks. They're essentially reworking the original idea and they've got some fantastic concepts, um, reworkings of episodes, some brand new episodes. And Ian worked on those along with many other things, including some Robin of Sherwood audio dramas. And A, B and C is a favourite episode of his. So we had a chat with him about why he likes this episode so much, why it's a standout episode of The Prisoner, and that's going to be coming up later on. Yeah. And of course, towards the end of the episode, we will be having our latest news roundup from the world of The Prisoner from Rick Davey. Hmm. And I think this week's world of The Prisoner is coming from the world of Port Marion, which yeah. is quite exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so before then, uh, let's crack on with A, B and C. Let's go. We've researched and computed his whole life, and it boils down to three people. A, B, and C. He must meet each one of them. So, A, B, and C, written by Anthony Skeen and directed by Pat Jackson. The first thing we think is kind of interesting is actually in the opening credits themselves. So these are pretty much standard over the course of the series after Arrival. The one thing that's kind of unique about these is that Colin Gordon, who is number two in this episode he is not introduced as the new number two he is introduced as number two he just says i am number two and for reasons that will become clear as we discuss the episode it's well known that a b and c uh, is thematically i suppose linked via its number two colin gordon with an episode called the general which is going to appear later in this series now um, they do essentially form um, not a two-part episode but they are sequential and a lot of things can be said about which episode comes before which in terms of you know how you could um, uh, take the uh, broadcast order but critically there are some events which really place a b and c although aired third as a successor to the episode the general and this is probably why colin gordon is revealed as number two rather than the new number two and indeed in the general i think he is actually the new number two yeah, in the opening credits of the general, when he asks who are you, he says the new number two, which wouldn't make sense if he had already been number two yeah. in this episode. So it's clear that they are, um, you know, jiggling around a little bit with the order of episodes. But I think there are a few things throughout the episode which will keep popping up, which make it clear that it's highly likely that these events take place after an episode called the general. And we're not going to linger on that too much because there are pretty too many spoilers. But it is an important thing to note, and it does reflect again. Um, I think we mentioned it in another episode, I think it was Chimes with Leo McKern, that Colin Gordon is the only number two who appears twice. Yeah, and interestingly, if you look at the production order, The General was the 10th episode in the production order, and ABC was the 11th. 
So when they were actually making them, they made two back-to-back episodes with Colin Gordon. But then when they aired, they split them up and then moved them far apart from each other in the in the running order. Yeah, And also they were probably pretty late in the production schedule as well, implying that you could argue that some of the events in this story uh, could be viewed after, uh, you know, number six has been in the village for a while. But that's a very hard one to start mm-hmm. playing with. Um, and again, I think we mentioned it in our Chimes episode. I'm pretty certain at some point we're going to have to do an episode all about different episode orders. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's that's a tangent that we've got to uh, during the opening credits. I think we get on with the actual episode. <laughs> so the episode begins with number two, uh, which, which is kind of interesting because in some respects, this episode is as much about number two sort of unravelling is, is about mm. number six getting the best of him and again if you view it as a two-part episode with a general you would expect that in the second part of the two-part episode the number two would have greater prominence as well and he's pacing around in his room in the green dome and in the foreground you see this giant red phone and it, it rings and he's clearly extremely disturbed about the fact that this ominous red phone is ringing <laughs> and he comes he he walks over to it and the phone is right in front of the camera and at first you think that it's like a a forced perspective thing that the phone looks huge he walks up to it and picks it up and the phone really is absolutely huge and it's it's this strange sight gag that reminds me of a film called Top Secret um, with Val Kilmer from the 80s I guess it was was a, a spoof movie it's very very funny and one of the opening sight gags is this military general guy walking over to a giant phone in the foreground and picks up and it's actually twice the size of his head and he's holding it next to him it's it's a yeah it's a lovely lovely gag yeah it reminds me of um that episode of of father ted with that that thing where father ted is is explaining sheep in the fields to Dougal, and it's like this phone is small but number two is far away So he, he has this very edgy conversation on a phone with someone who, from what he says, seems to be a, a male superior. Yeah. Um, and it's clearly not a conversation that is going well for him. Um, again, if you if you take this as happening after the events of the general, then perhaps number two is under a lot of pressure. And he's clearly not feeling well. He's, he starts for the first of many occasions in this episode uh, calming himself down with a glass of milk. Yeah, I think I think this episode uh, sort of triggers two aspects of potentially, you know, a single episode prisoner drinking game, <laughs> which is one, you have a drink whenever you see the giant red phone, because it will <laughs> pop up again. And two, you should have a drink every time number two has a glass of milk, because that happens very frequently. And if you do that, by the end of the episode you'll be completely blotted. <laughs> you'll kick things off pretty well in that scene. You get, you get two drinks right up front. <laughs> um, then he picks up a different phone. So clearly the red phone is only for talking yeah. to uh, whoever is pulling his strings. Yeah, I'm not even sure if the phone appears again in other episodes. I can't, like, I can't remember. I'm sure it will come up again. But mm. um, it is... I mean, there are situations where number two does converse with a superior. But I, I'm never like I, I'm pretty certain I would remember it from from arrival in chimes if it was a giant phone. <laughs> but no, I, no, I can't remember that. So again, it's just one of those little stylistic choices in this episode because it keeps coming up again because they keep using that same that same shot of of him and the phone. Mm. 
So he, he picks up a different phone, which is still pretty huge, but yeah. less comically oversized, and is talking to someone that we will later find out as number 14, a scientist, and refers to an experiment that they need to bring forward. She's been developing something. She complains that she needs more time to work on it. She still hasn't tested it on humans. She's still testing it on animals. And he insists that they're going to test it that very night on a human being um, and that they, they have to do it right away. Yeah, I'm kind of intrigued by the fact that number two refers to what number 14 is developing as an experiment. In many cases, the number two will always refer to what they're doing um, as a specific means to break number six. But here, the idea that it's an experiment plays a little bit with the fact that uh, there are strange tests being performed in the village on residents and people who are being brought there. And there's no real indication that this is a specific challenge on number six. It is almost like this is a this is an experiment. This is some kind of protocol they're trying to develop in the village. And there are lots of weird experiments going on. We've seen them when you know, when number six looks through those little porthole windows mm. into strange purple rooms where you've got <laughs> the Eggman who's kind of making something levitate and the, the people whose legs are going up and down in the room and things like that. There are very strange experiments going on. And it's the way they describe it implies that what's being developed here is another of those kinds of experiment. And as the episode goes on, Again, linking with the themes which are established throughout the show, it's something to do with mind control, mind manipulation, etc. Mm. So then we jump to a couple of guards carrying in a, a stretcher into the corridor and it's it's thunder and lightning and pouring with rain outside. Mm. Is this the only time it rains in the village? Yeah, I think it is. So all all the time we obviously see these iconic bright umbrellas being carried around. Um, I think if you look at the beginning of the episode as well, when you see number two sitting down, he's actually got two umbrellas next to him <laughs> for some reason, which, I, which I'd never noticed before. But yeah, it's it's odd. They always talk about, you know, lovely day and, you know, and uh, these little weather reports that come out of the tannoys when people are talking, etc. I think this is the only time when you see rain actually in an episode uh, of The Prisoner. And ironically, the people coming in out of the rain don't have umbrellas with them. Yeah, they all have Max. <laughs> you so. think there was enough umbrellas around the village <laughs> that they could use one? So we soon see that they're carrying in number six, who is out cold on the stretcher, and they're transferring him onto a table in the lab. And essentially we get a bit of an info dump about what this experiment is, how it works, and what they're going to use it for. So what this is, is they have found a way to read somebody's brain waves, convert that into data, and then convert the data into images and sounds that can be projected and, and uh, on a screen like you were mm. watching a movie. And then similarly, they can take their own data and insert it back into somebody's mind to effectively influence their dreams. It was Inception before Inception. Yeah, several decades before <laughs> Inception. It's a proper sci-fi concept. So yeah. It's a wonderful concept. Um, and it's so it's so neat and to be honest they do more in this 50 minute episode than Inception did in what felt like about 8 hours <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's also very clever because up front it tells us that this is going to be structured in three parts, we're told that he can only have three doses so we, we know how this is going to play, mm. we're told that there are three suspects in the identity of someone that they think he might have been selling out to when he 
resigned and they're going to try and find out which of these three mysterious people he might have been intending to sell out to. So we already know essentially how this is going to go. There's going to be three experiments. He's going to meet these three people. And there's, there's a couple of really lovely moments in the exchange between number two and number 14. Um, she's clearly not happy about having to do this experiment so soon mm. with untested technology. And he says, just get it right or it will be proved on you. <laughs> and it's clear that even the people who are working for the village, most of them, if not all of them, are under pretty much as much threat from their superiors as the village residents are. Mm. They're all one click of the fingers away from becoming village residents themselves and having their own experiments done on them. So it, it's not just a nightmare for the people who've been taken there. It seems like a bit of a nightmare for most of the people who are working there. And there's a, a couple of lovely moments where you first see how they're reading what's in his mind and projecting it onto the screen. First of all, before they've interrupted, they put this headgear on him. And what's projected onto the screen is the resignation that we see in the opening credits, mm. where he walks in and bangs the table and George Markstein is on the other side mm. and starts ranting and raving about something. And it's 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 really weird, and it's the first sign that this episode is going to get a bit meta. Because why would number six be thinking about his resignation in that way? It's not from his point of view. He's not seeing what number six would have seen when he did that. And it's edited, and it is it is the show. Mm. They're showing you the show that is in his mind, and this is just going to get murkier and murkier as the episode goes on. But also, I love that moment where. Number 14 goes to inject number six with the first of the three doses of this drug, mm. um, this strange purple substance. And his eyes are open and she leans over him and then she realises that he can see her and she looks upon the screen and her image of her leaning over him is what's on the screen mm. because it's now feeding all the way through his mind through this machinery and onto the projector. Yeah, I mean, I think... Yeah, it's a wonderful summary of you know of how this whole episode is set up. I mean, the the two things I think in addition I would add uh, one, and it's a really minor point, is I like the fact that when they bring him in uh, to the lab, he's got that kind of orange blanket on. But I like the fact it's got these three stripes on it because mm -hmm. again, it's like in Chimes when he has his tracksuit on, they keep that sort of uh, uh, piped or stripy motif. Mm -hmm. And in this case, he has three at the top and three at the bottom, which is six. You see, mm. um, the other thing I think is is uh, important is that this is really one of those episodes which shows how the concepts that they were bringing to the fore in the prisoner were really prescient about you know Big Brother and the idea of manipulation and the use of private information because basically what they're what this is building on is the fact that in earlier episodes they referenced the fact that they have a file on number six mm. now what they're saying is not only that they know everything about him but they've now you know through all of their research they've computed who a b and c these potential people who he might be about to have been selling out to are so they're able to kind of use that information to work out and sort of extrapolate what may have happened next but also they're now taking that as a means to actually influence 
the way he thinks and actually gain closer insight into his reasoning and consciousness, which is what essentially was being discussed in Chimes when number six is talking to the colonel. Mm. And he's saying that there was a greater issue at work when he resigned it wasn't just the nature of the work he was doing but it was a principal thing mm-hmm. uh, there was something that was on his conscience that he had to clear by doing this i think this is interesting that they've they've decided to try and go after that that's another reason why i think this episode might fit quite well after chimes of big ben because mm-hmm. it does build upon uh, that specific exchange which happens when number six thinks he's got to London and he's talking to the colonel it's it's exploring the nature of his resignation and it's showing the uh the fact that the village are desperate to know what happened and they know that it was something subconscious which is why they delve into that but also the fact it's in his mind the whole time yeah means it's something critical because he is thinking about it the whole time Um, it's something which he has withheld within a prison in his mind he's not letting anyone get at that information and I suppose the the dramatic drive here is the fact that, you know, these people who are running the village have a way to get into his mind and actually penetrate that barrier and actually find out why he resigned. And all of number two's idea is based on the idea that he wants to know why he resigned and he believes it was because it was information that he had that he was about to sell out to other people and he wants to get that information and that will explain the resignation etc in a roundabout way Mm. it also makes me think going back to chimes again of when nadia was in the room having tried to swim out to sea and they're with the electrified floor Mm. you know that room and they're kind of saying what was in your mind what was in your mind it's that it's the idea that it's not enough for us to know all these facts about you we also have to know the contents of your mind yeah it's this all-encompassing means of getting at the you know the entire person what it is about their essence in Mm. fact and how their mental processes work it's a it's a very very dark aspect and the fact that number six has been drugged and brought here implies that the village really have means of of doing this kind of research and it's interesting that as the episode goes on we will see several failures on the part of the village authorities that are connected to gaps in their information gathering. That there are a couple of ways that their attempt to extract this information from number six go catastrophically wrong, and it's because there are holes in what they know. Mm. They don't actually know enough. Mm. They think they know enough to pull this off, but they don't. And I think the fact they've gone to this extreme measure is probably why, again, if you place this episode after the general, the only reason that number two would have been given a reprieve of any kind is that he has something extremely bonkers at hand to try and get at this information i think that's what we're seeing here Mm. as well so they induce this dream state in number six and specifically they're placing him in a party in paris hosted by the apparently famous madame angadine in fact when number two is explaining this to number 14 he just says, oh, they were all at Madame Angadine's celebrated parties. But why does he just assume that number 14 knows who Madame Angadine is? She's a scientist. But everyone knows Madame Angadine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but as number 14 says, there's nothing like a good party. Yeah, which is very prescient in terms of what happens in the remaining 40-odd minutes of the episode. 
Nothing like a good party. So he makes his way into the rather lavish looking party. There's plenty of champagne flowing. There's music in the air. Everyone's dancing. Everyone's happy. And he meets up with his gracious host, Madame Angadine herself, mm. uh, who is uh, very flattering, very flirtatious. And he explains to her that he's going on holiday. He says he wants to go somewhere different, somewhere quiet, where he can think. Assuming that this is genuinely what he was thinking at that time, was he planning to go and sit quietly on a palm tree beach and think there? It's hard to know. I think it's a, it's very telling that he's potentially already being quite cagey in his dream state about what he's revealing. Mm. It's almost like he is... You know, he's got this cage around the reasons why he resigned. Mm. And even in his dream state, he's not vulnerable enough to uh, reveal that information. So it's a bit of a vague response. Um, One thing I will come back to probably a bit later on is the comic book Shattered Visage. Mm. Now in that, uh, so that was the sequel almost a uh, comic in the late 1980s uh, from Dean Motta. It's a great little comic book, which it's a four part story, which follows up some of the events of the series. One thing that happens there is there is an idea that number six has spent a lot of time thinking, you know, that's been the reason for his stay at, his, well, at that point in the story, in the comic book, you know, he's, he's been contemplating a lot of different things and I find there are some interesting links between Shattered Visage and A, B and C. Not only that, but also the fact that uh, the comic book is structured in four parts, A, B, C and D as well. So, uh, But we'll come back to that. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's an interesting parallel that comes up. But the fact that he's been thinking, he's there's something that is not sitting quite right with his job that has led to this resignation. Um, but also the reasons why he resigned. He's still He's still keeping those... Uh, reasons to himself and he's not going to easily reveal them yeah so then they decide to insert candidate a suspect Mm. a whatever Mm. you want to call them uh into his dream so they open up file a and see the picture and it's peter bowles (laughs) we should probably explain who peter bowles is for our overseas listeners (laughs) Yeah, Peter Bowles is a very, very, very famous British actor who has been in absolutely everything, uh, largely on TV, but um, comedy, drama, everything. I mean, I, I remember watching him a long time ago in things like uh, To the Manor Born. That's mm. where I remember him a lot. But in Rumpole of the Bailey? Yeah. Was yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, he, yeah, he, yeah, he yeah that was yeah. in with Liam McCann. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's in absolutely everything. Like every, he's guest starred in like every TV show Uh uh, on British TV, um, and he's—I think he's probably in his early eighties, maybe mid eighties now. I don't know, but he's still acting. Yeah, and he's just kind of a, a classic face in, you know, in British television. It's great to see him pop up here. Yeah. So this was really before he got particularly famous. I suppose it was a, a sitcom called *To the Manor Born* that was in the late seventies, early eighties, that was absolutely massive mm. on British TV. That really made him very very famous Mm. so it's quite funny to see him crop up in the occasional thing before that Mm. happened and his career went bonkers Um, but he he kind of typically plays characters who are a bit bit smooth yeah um, smooth is the word yeah yeah, an old smoothie (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, but he, he's so recognisable that as soon as you open the file and see his photo, yeah. like, ah, it's Peter Bowles, very young looking Peter Bowles. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the way they uh, insert this data into the dream, so the, the footage from Madame Angadine's party was on one of those red circular discs that gets slotted into the machine. And also the information on candidate A, Peter, but I don't think we ever know his name, do we? He's just mm. A. Um, is on another one of these discs lab- handily labelled A in file A in case anyone misplaces it uh, that they're going to add in so they're injecting additional data into the machine is it, is, it, is it tangent time yet or should I leave my tangent for later you can tangent now we've already gone on so many <laughs> so probably my earliest memory of watching television at all in in my life when I must have been about I don't know two or three years old or something like that is watching this show called Chock-a-Block it, it was like a, a, a preschoolers show on the BBC in the early 80s which gives away how old I am um, but I've I've never met anyone else who remembers watching this show they only made 13 episodes and most of them are lost they're not in the BBC archives anymore um, the chances of someone having a home video copy pretty remote at this point. But a, a couple of episodes did survive and you can find them on YouTube, which I'm very grateful for because if I hadn't found them, I would have decided to write that I had made this up from some strange childhood memory. But basically, it was a, a show where the presenter would drive on in this tiny little car and they were in a sort of factory and there was this this great big sort of giant brightly coloured machine if you if you imagine a supercomputer designed by a four-year-old that's what it looked like with screens and reel-to-reel tapes and levers and buttons and and all this stuff and they had data files on these uh i don't know if they were wooden or plastic but these brightly coloured kind of red rectangular blocks that were stored on the shelf and you could take one of these blocks and in, and slot it into this machine and it would start playing the data on the screen and it would be you know, animations, songs, pictures of wildlife, all sorts of stuff. I mean, it, it, was, it was for like three-year-olds kind of television. Um, and I was kind of obsessed with this. It, I mean, the, you know, the, the animations and the pictures were fun, but what, what obsessed me was the idea of this machine, this machine that can do this. And these little, these little blocks that had this data on them, it seemed kind of miraculous to me when I was about three or whatever, <laughs> however old I was when I watched this. And what you could do is that the, the person operating the machine, they could be playing an animation and they would get the microphone that was attached to the machine and they, would, they could sing into it. And then the machine would learn the song that they had sung and would start incorporating it into the animation and and all these things and there is whatever neurons fire in my mind when I watch A, B and C in particular when they take these brightly coloured circular data things I mean it's not even really clear what format that data is in (laughs) and insert them into the machine that is just irrevocably connected to wherever the memories are in my mind that stores the memories of watching Chock-a-Block and just how obsessed I was with that machine that could do this. And I, I can't disconnect them. 
um, to the point where, you know, when we were doing this episode, I had to go on YouTube and watch some episodes of Chocolate Book because I just kept thinking about it. And I haven't watched it in decades. And yet I never forgot that watching that machine working and how how incredible it seemed to me when I was, I don't know, maybe I was like two. I'm not, I'm not even entirely sure. But yeah, thankfully a couple of episodes have survived and are on YouTube. So check it out if you want to watch what is possibly now the dullest kids TV show ever. You watch it now and you think, oh my God, I was easily entertained when I was that young. But but yeah, this it's 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 the data on this this little thing and you put it in and, and it comes up on screen and then you can influence it by talking into it. It's uh I I can't extract the memories from one another. Yeah. <laughs> I uh yeah, I now regret allowing you to go on that tangent. <laughs> Well, there we go. That's that's, that's probably going to be the uh, the most uh, irrelevant tangent for anyone but me uh, that I'm ever going to go on on this uh, on this podcast. Not on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> on this episode only. But hey, if you remember watching Chocolate Block, please tweet me because I want to know I'm not the only one who remembers watching it. <laughs> or if if you have an episode hidden away on video, uh, tell the BBC because they lost most of them. <laughs> so number six meets A, Peter Bowles, and they have a unusual conversation. It's clear that they know of each other. Um, they are surprised to be meeting at one of Madame Ongadine's parties, implying that this really is, as number two supposes, uh, a means to, to introduce these characters into number six's psyche to see um, how things would play out. And he explicitly um, asks him, you know, what his price is. Would he sell out to him? And this is amidst a conversation which is shrouded in what does sound like high-level spy talk. <laughs> um, there are lots of references to whose side each character is on. Again, this reflects the conversations in Chimes that Leo McKern has as number two with number six where there's a question about you know which side runs the village and there's all these you know unusual things which are coming up and in fact uh, a says at one point sides don't matter yeah yeah i'm not sure about you but i get the distinct impression that although they know of each other number six doesn't really like a at all mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's quite a a playful yet frosty exchange mm. that they have with each other and and all of this does kind of lean heavily on the idea that maybe number six was some kind of spy mm. before he resigned. Because he, he clearly knows who all these people are. Mm. And they clearly think that he might potentially want to sell out or switch sides or mm. or whatever it is. But in, in the end, it, it ends with number six taking his leave and uh, not wanting anything more to do with him. Yeah, and then you kind of cut back to seeing what's going on in the lab in the village. And number two is really frustrated by this. And he obviously wants the exchange between uh, number six and A to continue. And he's, he kind of wants to know why that isn't happening. Number 14 explains that this is just a dream state that he's in. And all that this method is doing is it's able to introduce characters and concepts into number six's psyche, but it can't direct how those things play out. It's clear that A has some willpower in the situation because he does want to know uh, why number six 
uh, resigned because A does want to push number six to reveal um, you know, what his price is and what he's willing to sell and mm. uh, kind of an if not, why not situation. As number six walks off and number two protests about this, uh, 14 explains that it's six's dream and it has to take its course. Mm. She can only provide the scenario, but it has to play out the way that it would happen mm. if that's where he was. And as he heads to the door, uh, you get this shot where in front of the camera, really close up, there's a huge bunch of red flowers. Just as the music gets very dramatic and he opens the door and there is A with some goons who are going to drag him off somewhere. Uh, and this is something that I'm going to get onto a bit later is my colour theory of this episode of the use of purple and red. Mm. But that red always represents some kind of imminent threat. And you get this, it's, it's so unmistakable, the camera goes right in front of this giant bunch of red flowers. And similarly to the fact that the red phone represents absolute dread for number two. Mm. And there's there will be more to come. I'm going to get mm. onto purple later. Purple's great in this episode. <laughs> um, it, it's only my weird theory, but I quite like it. Mm. So then we see A and his goons manhandling Six out of the back of the car where they've taken him somewhere. It seems like it's dawn now, so they've obviously mm. travelled a while. And A says something about you're in my country now. So I'm not sure if they're still in France. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> if they've crossed the border, I mean, I don't know if they've, you know, if they've, if they've gone somewhere, yeah. uh, somewhere else. But fisticuffs ensue, and we get the uh, the standard bit of action and uh, a punch up that's required in in every prisoner episode at some point. But what I really like is the fact that at the end of the punch up, as Six sort of straightens his bow tie and walks away in slightly James Bond fashion, mm. he says, "Be seeing you." Mm. Now, this is presumably not something he would say before he went to the village. Yeah. Because when he arrived at the village, he was completely confused about people saying this. And yet this dream that they've imposed upon his mind is clearly meant to trick him into thinking that this is just after he's resigned and he's being propositioned to sell out. Mm. So why is the language of the village still filtering through his mm. mind to the point where he would say be seeing you in this dream state when he's not supposed to know what the village is yeah no so that's a good point i think could it be just to do with the fact that you know a dream is well the dream state he's in is this series of events which 14 has presented to him and is influencing and has talked about you know this is how the events would play out if they were to happen but it's still taking place in the mind of number six who has and is currently experiencing life in the village and so it's his subconscious seeping in so just as much as um you know he's fixated at the beginning of the episode in his mind on his resignation it's clear that the events of the village are already seeping into his subconscious too so the dream is over. Number two wants to go straight into giving him the second dose of the drug and going straight to B. But number 14 is insistent. They've got to wait 24 hours. Otherwise, it could completely do him in. Yeah, so it's clear that A was not the person who number six would have sold out to. You know, Had he uh, been propositioned after his resignation, like you were saying, there's this sort of 
three-part structure and so we're going to move on to B but first uh, we have a scene where number six wakes up back in the village as normal clearly he's got some recollection that something weird has happened to him it's got a bit of a hangover yeah um and this is first of those moments when you know i mean to be honest he must wake up all the time and wonder what's happened to him in the night in the village <laughs> but as he gets up and walks around again like you say he, you know, he does look hungover he goes to the front door he looks outside and he sees number 14 buying flowers from a girl outside and it's interesting because he clearly recognizes her yeah. and he's recognizing her probably in a way which is related to him his, uh, having his eyes open very early on in the procedure when um, I, think, I think just before he was injected wasn't he but yeah but uh, whilst he was being put under so he must recognize her in some way he notices her badge number number 14 and uh, he then looks on his wrist and he sees the single needle stick mark um where he realizes that something was done to him in the night yeah and and this was this was the order in which it happened in the lab in that she leaned over him and he clearly saw her because we saw it then moving through and onto the screen and then she closed his eyes and then injected him so he saw her Hmm. and then he was injected and then seeing her again and he immediately looks at his wrist Hmm. there must be some some kind of buried memory of of what happened Hmm. and going back to chimes we spoke a lot in that episode about the passage of time how there are references to uh, the art exhibition being weeks away and all these different things happening what's nice about a b and c is it's very clear that this is happening over consecutive nights Hmm. as well so it's clear that they do know when they're playing with time in the world of the prisoner. So then we go to the seating area outside the old people's home, otherwise known as the hotel in Port Marion. And initially we get a location shot where you can see various people sitting outside. And I think you can see the Admiral in the background, the uh, the one in the Dennis Semenis shirt from Arrival, who says, we're all pawns, my dear. Oh, the one who, yeah, who uh, speaks to Cobb's girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I think he's there. And but but then we very quickly switch to what seems like a, a studio lot with a painted version of the of the old people's home behind them. So they were clearly filming almost all of this episode uh, in the studio. And he goes to sit down at a table with number fourteen, who's reading a newspaper. And th- this is the Tally Ho newspaper. Yeah, for every ten. Yeah, and the headline is: "Is number two fit for further term?" Yeah, now that's important because. Uh, without giving too much away that headline heavily foreshadows the major theme which is about to take place in the next episode free for all although we've spoken about the way in which you can view a b and c and the general this is something which may be placing the events of abc before the next broadcast episode free for all Hmm. so he has a brief exchange with number 14 uh, he outright accuses her of being one of them, mm. i.e. one of the people who really runs the village, because the previous number 14 was someone completely different. Yeah. Uh, and she doesn't really seem that interested in having a conversation with him. She uh, gets up and leaves as soon as she possibly can. <laughs> but he then hotfoots it over to the Green Dome to see number two. And you get the distinct impression that this is not the first time they've met hmm. which again lends itself towards maybe this coming after the general hmm. in the order um, because he doesn't seem surprised to see that number two there um, 
that they've they've clearly at least had one previous exchange. But number two is once again being menaced by the giant red phone <laughs> sitting right in front of the camera like a claw pointed at him. It's wonderful. They they uh they have a rather coded exchange where number six says that he slept well mm. um and that he got the mark on the arm in his sleep. His favourite doctor is uh, number fourteen. Mm. He's just letting them know that he has a fairly good idea of what's going on. Mm. But even at this point, he's not completely aware of what to do or exactly what's happening. It's interesting that he, you know, he's one of those characters who is quite willing to let on how much he knows, even when he doesn't know a huge amount. Mm. Because he must have been in the village enough time to know that this is a way to start antagonising the people in charge of the village, or like more specifically you know the number two he, he knows that he frustrates them a lot so i think it's interesting that he has decided to reveal these bits of information which are kind of overplaying his hand a little bit because he doesn't know exactly what's happening i mean he knows that number 14 is involved which then immediately goes to number two he knows it's something to do with this needle stick mark um but it's nice that he reveals this much information without having a full idea of exactly what's happening um, i mean he doesn't know about these dreams that he's having or the use of the uh, A, B and C experiment on him as well. Mm. And then number two gets another angry phone call from someone on the big red phone of doom. <laughs> um, and it's clearly upsetting him because he's drinking some more milk. Yes, yeah, so that's like about, I don't know, 10 shots or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Where did you get it, number six? In my sleep. Oh, you must have been restless. Perhaps you need to check up. So again, back in number six's house, a maid shows up and brings him a cup of tea. He's sitting on the edge of the bed in his dressing gown and he drinks a cup of tea and then kind of clearly goes dizzy, feels a bit faint and collapses on the floor. And then we cut back to the lab as uh, syringe number one has gone and they're about to administer the contents of syringe number two to uh, number six as part of their plan. One thing I would note is the syringes are one, two and three. And the original title of the episode apparently was one, two, and three oh, instead of A, B, and C. So, so one, two, and three relate to the syringes, and A, B, and C relate to uh, the people. Yeah, it's, it's very handy for the audience that she labelled them up like that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so it's time for B, and he's back at the party, and it's it's cool because that they're not rebooting the evening for him. They're, they're making this second part an extension of the same evening <laughs> because when Madame Angadine comes over, she mentions the fact that A, whatever his his name was, has left and she says, oh, I never really liked that guy anyway. So that they're clearly trying to extend the same narrative for him rather than make him forget that he'd had the previous night's mm. dream. But then uh, as he's chatting to Madame Angadine, a, a waitress comes over mm and delivers a note from a mysterious other party guest who wants to see Six in the arbour. Yeah, and we have a bit of information uh, about B uh, from the exchange that number 14 has with number 2 back in the village, where it's clear that she is uh, a spy, a well-known spy, mm. and indeed one from a long line of spies. <laughs> so he heads off to the arbour to meet B. And because we knew that A was played by Peter Bowles, because um, he's very well known, I was intrigued. I wanted to look up who played B, because she seemed kind of familiar, but I couldn't figure out where from other than from the prisoner. So I, I did a bit of Googling, 
and her name was Annette Carroll. She was a German actress and she did quite a lot of British TV in the 60s, a lot of ITC shows. She was in The Avengers, The Saint, Man in the Suitcase, obviously The Prisoner. Um, but it's very sad. She actually died in 1967, one week after A, B and C aired on British television. Mm. Um, and it, it must be from having seen her in these other 60s shows, which is why she's familiar. Um, you know, if, if you look at her filmography, she'd done lots and lots of those kind of shows for, for well over a decade. And then sadly, it, it stops in 67, and that's why. So number six comes across B, who's sitting at a table drinking champagne, and they kind of reminisce about old times. Again, this implies that, well, the nature of B's profession was that she is or was a spy. So, again, it's not a major leap to suspect that, in light of what's going on, number six had some link to that profession as well uh, in his former life before being taken to the village. Yeah, and he was clearly on much better terms with B than he ever was yeah. with A. They're quite flirtatious with each other. Uh, he says, last time I saw you, you were hiking across Switzerland or something like that. And uh, he, he says something about, I, I recognised your signal and I, I seen that there was something in the note that made him know that it was from her, hmm. something that she wrote or doodled or, or something. Um, but they clearly get on quite well. And in fact, he refers to A as her enemy. Hmm. So whatever side A is on, is B on a different side or is B on the same side, but his rival in attempting to win people over i'm not sure yeah it's it's strange because i think i think you're probably right i think it is to do with both a and b being spies on opposite sides um but given that what's about to happen it's intriguing as to whether number six even here is revealing that he knows that something is going on and that like you say as well they are both there to try and coerce him into revealing what his secrets are about his resignation or potentially what information he has that he would uh, sell on to I presume those on the opposite side to those who run the village which is strange because then again it's something quite sinister because it implies that the information he has was potentially high level information that had been gathered for the village in some way or on behalf of them it, it was somehow secrets that were relevant to them so the fact they're being potentially revealed by six even though they're not implies again that you know he's he's he used to work in some way for something like an organization that was affiliated with the village it's not like they're the other side uh, in this context and i, I want to talk about b's dress <laughs> I sense a tangent <laughs> because not only is it possibly the most 60s dress I've ever seen it's like a, a, a crazy swirl of different shades of purple but there's something interesting going on with the colour purple in this episode the drug itself that 14 injects him with is purple in the syringes um, when it's undiluted it's like a sort of dark reddish purple Later on, when Six dilutes it, it's more of a pinkish purple. But it's it's the connection between the colour purple and sort of psychedelia. 
it's it's a connection between that and being in a hallucinogenic state mm. you know being in a purple haze if you will mm. um if i think didn't purple haze come out in 67 i think it might have been like earlier that year could be yeah that there's 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 so much really bold purple in this it it happens almost as much as really obvious in your face in the camera red happens in this um and i I think it signifies being in a hallucinogenic state and things not seeming right because when he was talking to a he never really felt like there was something wrong he didn't seem to feel like this wasn't happening mm. he just gave a the brush off and, and wasn't interested in dealing with him but but this time he he starts to sense that there is something very wrong that things are not what they seem and i, I think that the use of purple that's going to happen again later as well a few mm. times later um is is that um kind of troubling hallucinogenic state that he's experiencing yeah no i i completely agree i think this idea that things are starting to get quite trippy is really interesting because so far a lot of the imagery we've seen in the prisoner has been the contrast between the very kind of i suppose serious hyper conservative world of the government we see those scenes of number six and the people he's interacted with potentially outside of the village as well or we've seen the village which has a very unique colourful but not necessarily psychedelic kind of production design to it it's just very odd and striking with these primary colours and stripes and and these mixtures of architecture etc this is really placing the show in the 60s yeah it's this weird psychedelic thing and it's the first time that it reveals the contemporary nature of the show and I think it's very telling that when they do the 60s they do go all psychedelic because I think And it's not too much of a spoiler, I think. But as the series progresses, especially in the finale, there are elements which are, again, in this kind of slightly trippy, hallucinogenic theme. And the fact you mentioned the idea of things being hallucinogenic, again, it's not a spoiler because it's not to do with the series, I think. But there are elements of the series which are considered to be explicitly hallucinogenic. I won't say which ones in Shattered Visage. Which is one of the reasons why people are, you know, they sometimes like aspects of it, sometimes don't. I mean, I, you know, I love the series, but it's interesting that one major problem that people seem to have had is that elements of the show are retconned as being strange, mind control, hallucinogenic things as well. So again, that's another link between Shattered Visage and what's happening in A, B and C. So number two pushes 14 to directly intervene in the conversation to try and get something out of number six and 14 is able to put words into b's mouth by speaking into the the data flow that is going into six's mind he very abruptly realizes that there is something wrong with who b seems to be because she's suddenly not talking like herself he clearly knows her so well the moment she starts behaving in a way that is not consistent with the woman that he knows he he sees it and he he's immediately suspicious and knows that there is something wrong and this is really where you you get a, a failure in the information that the village has they don't know b well enough 
And indeed, 14 isn't really prepared enough. She's mm. a scientist. She wouldn't know how to pretend to be a spy yeah. to pull off this kind of deception. But also when Six starts to challenge B about basic information about her life, number two struggles to, to get the information out of the file quickly enough. And indeed, some of it just isn't in the file. Mm. And, you know, the, the, all of their catalogue of information isn't enough to convince Six that he's really talking to B, and it makes the whole thing fall apart. And so far, when we've seen 14 questioning why number six isn't responding, she just refers to him resisting in some way. Mm. It's interesting that here, the resistance takes the form of him, although being unconscious, being aware to an extent that... uh, what he's experiencing is a manipulation of his own consciousness. Mm. Um, I mean, I think we pointed out right at the very beginning of the episode, but the fact that these concepts are being dealt with, the fact they have somebody not only feeding in images, but also sounds into somebody's mind and being able to watch them back on a screen. I mean, this is, I think for a 60s TV show, which wasn't always you know a science fiction show every episode this is some really hardcore sci-fi they're putting in and they are not afraid to play with these kind of crazy concepts you know within what the constraints if you can even call them that of uh, the prisoner are i mean it's just it's wonderful it's it's part science fiction it's part james bond adventure it's very very bizarre and again it's a very distinct tone from what we've seen in the first two episodes so the next morning, Six wakes up. He realises he's got another mark on his arm. Something's happened to him during the night. So this time he stakes out 14 and follows her on her way to the uh, hidden entrance to the lab and sees her go inside and he finds a, a kind of vertical vent that he can clamber his way down. It's like John McClane meets Father Christmas. <laughs> he makes his way in. Um, he finds the lab. He sees the party footage on the monitor. He, he he follows another cable, just like he did in the Chimes with Big Ben, to uh, to figure out where the machines are going. He sees the files for A, B, and C, and and rummages through the contents. So he's clearly building up a picture of what has happened to him. That they're feeding this information to him. Yeah, because he must have realised he's had the strangest dream over the last couple of nights mm-hmm. when he's been at one of Ongadine's parties, and he's met Peter Bowles. Or a not Peter Bowles. That'd be very that'd be very meta. Although it does get very meta later on. Yeah, uh, he's met A and he's met B in his dreams, so he knows that this must be the root of everything. And the fact that he then finds the uh, syringes um, makes him start to piece together exactly uh, what may have been going on uh, in in terms of the villagers' manipulation of his uh, his mental state. Yeah, and he clearly formulates a plan because crucially, the file for C has no photo and no disc inside. So he knows that they don't know who C is, Mm. whoever it is, which is a crucial piece of information for his plan. And also he, uh, when he finds the final syringe, he um, ejects most of it out, crucially not all of it, and fills it back up again with water. I assume that's safe to inject. <laughs> it wouldn't be good to only knows what it was in the first place they were injecting him with. But it, it 
turns it from dark purple to pale purple, but it's still very purple, this hallucinogenic drug that they're giving him. And um, so when he gets it, he clearly will get a mild dose. Mm. But presumably he's thinking maybe with a milder dose, I will have some kind of control over what's happening Mm. rather than just being completely out of it. And as an aside, I was thinking about this episode as a self-contained event and how if a modern TV show tried to do the same thing, what would happen, I think, would be he wouldn't just dispense the contents of that syringe into a napkin. He would keep the contents of that and it would pop up as a plot point later on Mm. where he would use it himself to manipulate somebody else. It's very strange how... The show is so inventive that it's able to uh, devise and discard these concepts within the 50 minutes of an episode. It doesn't need to have any continuity between episodes where the schemes are taking place again and again. Whereas you would see that, I think, a modern show, they would pat themselves on the back for such a clever conceit as, <laughs> as what happens in A, B and Z. And they would keep it going for way too long. Yeah. So everything that happens in, in the show, it's it's not only the fact that each episode is very distinct but it's also the fact that i think it's so original that they can produce these little sort of vignettes from the world of the village each time and Mm -hmm. in this case you know it's a it's a beautiful storyline with you know these strong spy-fi kind of themes in their in their truest sense but you know when the episode is done the episode is done which is why it's very unique oh, when a character like number two, played by Colin Gordon, comes up twice. Because it's very rare you get the repetition of things. I suppose except for the Dennis the Menace Admiral Duke, <laughs> who appears to be so integral to the plot that he appears twice. He's always walking. Irritating man. And so they have all this surveillance on Six, but they don't manage to catch him breaking into the lab. That is true. They follow him everywhere. Yeah. 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 Should have put some security cameras in there. It's <laughs> like the one place they don't put cameras is in their own premises. Yeah, let's leave a giant air vent that's big enough for a person to climb down and not put a camera inside and leave our syringes lying around. <laughs> so, very briefly, we see number two uh, waking up dishevelled, unable to sleep, clearly on the verge of some kind of nervous breakdown. Mm switches on the surveillance cameras to see what number six is up to and uh, just flips out about the fact that he's he's always walking. So irritating. Doesn't he get tired? <laughs> it's not in a good way. He's got to have some more milk. I like the fact that when uh, the camera is following number six, he looks back at the camera and he says, be seeing you. Because again, this is one of those moments in this episode where you could argue that some of the things that are happening are really breaking the fourth wall here. Um, it's just like that bit where uh, number six is kind of speaking to the audience when he's speaking to B, and he says uh, something like, uh, do you ever get the feeling you're being manipulated? Mm. Which is a message not necessarily just to B, but to the audience themselves. It's really interesting that they keep throwing these things in. And it ties back to what you were saying at the beginning about the nature of the footage he is seeing in his dream when he's thinking about his resignation back in number six's apartment it's a very stylish 60s apartment but the camera angle behind the sink is such that 
you can see a really obvious very cheap yellow plastic uh, dish rack <laughs> sitting by the sink and it's just such a lovely cheap 60s thing in this otherwise very quite swish 60s apartment I don't know why I love that dish rack <laughs> it's just so cheap <laughs> um, but he uh, he pulls his tea away mm. has a glass of water and probably collapses <laughs> there you go that's what happens yeah but would they not see him pouring the tea away given they've got loads of surveillance cameras in the apartment yeah I mean obviously in earlier episodes they've shown that they have surveillance all over his apartment including in the kitchen when they see him making breakfast and things like that so that's a bit weird but again if you do put A, B and C a lot further along in the timeline potentially uh, if he's been there in the village for quite a while you do wonder if maybe he knows that there's like some blind spot where he can get things done uh, without anyone seeing him 12 picks up syringe number three and she she takes a good long look at it before injecting him Hmm. as if she thinks there's something fishy about it because the the color is clearly different Mm -hmm. but she doesn't say anything Um, because presumably she's thinking well who could possibly have done anything to it yeah but it's kind of cool that he's allowed himself to be kidnapped as it were in the night um and no one has seen through this so again as with all these things you you have to suspend your disbelief a little bit about the details here but uh yeah we're about to enter the world of uh candidate c (laughs) it's creamy this is a creamy immediately we see there's something very wrong this time about this dream state weird camera angles floating around the music is distorted a great big close-up of those bright red flowers shouting danger danger <laughs> something is wrong here um it's it's very very trippy this whole next sequence so as the music and the laughter of the crowd becomes distorted and the camera <laughs> angle sways in a kind of seasick fashion, mm. Six makes his way across the party and he sees a woman wearing these psychedelic purple mm. dress, but it's not her. And he, he says to her, oh, sorry, I thought you were someone else. There's clearly some kind of nod to the fact that I know that that woman wearing that dress was not mm. who she seemed to be. But also, again, it's this this psychedelic splash of purple all over the screen just as things are getting at their trippiest. It's interesting that 14 knows that something is wrong. She can't figure out what it is, whereas number two is so desperate to pursue this experiment that he can't see it. He doesn't realise that uh, number six may have figured out what's going on or is himself influencing the dream state he's in yeah and he he has a chat with madame angadine uh, who wants more champagne mm. and uh, you get that, that wonderful this is a dreamy party <laughs> line the finest delivery of any line <laughs> ever by anyone <laughs> i'm sure there are many more in the prison but i think that, that that's one of my favorite bits because <laughs> i think it's one of those bits where once you hear it, I always I always hear it for the first time almost when I watch the episode, 
And I think next time I'm at a party, I'm going to just stand in the middle and just shout it just like Patrick McGowan would. And I always forget. <laughs> Are you then going to go and turn all the mirrors around? <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's such a wonderful shot as he kind of queasily makes his way over to the wall yeah. and, take, and takes the crooked mirror and shifts it. And as he does so, the camera angle moves and the dream that two and 14 are watching moves. Um, and he's staring right into the mirror and therefore staring right at us through mm. the lens of the camera as if the mirror is not only their outlook onto the dream but also our outlook onto the show mm. um, this, this whole dream is, is so meta in so many ways yeah and like with all the confusion which is inflicted upon his mental state by number 2 and 14 this is him basically in control and sort of straightening up everything mm. and uh, again I think 14 is perturbed by this but number 2 doesn't realise that number 6 is now in control of the series of events that are about to play out Yeah, and I, I love the fact that whether you're seeing it whether you're seeing his reflection in the mirror from behind him or whether you're seeing his face straight on as the camera is the mirror and tilts around he has two different facial expressions mm. um, and presumably it was a continuity error but it works so wonderfully because it just adds to how disturbing this is mm. that he's he's kind of grimacing in one and s almost smiling in the other mm -hmm. it's just even more disturbing that that, that that came out that way yeah I think it's a nod to uh, the direction here I think it was Pat Jackson who directed this episode that these sequences are absolutely fantastic you know, this, this whole... I mean, it's not just the general trippiness of it, but it's the fact that you can mix all these different visual styles and even the sound in this episode. All these different things that come together to make this an absolutely bonkers world. And again, it's, it's rare you see any kind of film or TV accurately... Well, not accurately, but kind of convincingly within the universe portray dreamlike states mm. and i think again the only the only time i've seen dreamlike states done well is in the show like twin peaks mm. um, where what you see does feel like a dream and the line it is a dreamy party i think that is reflected many years later in uh, what we're seeing in in shows like twin peaks where you have certainly in season three gordon cole and the bellucci dream where uh, he says, uh, we are like the dreamer who dreams and then lives inside the dream. Mm -hmm. But then who is the dreamer? You know, I think it's, yeah, it is just about the idea that what we're observing, at least in the prison, is actually a dream world with dream logic in this episode. And yet it's being impinged upon by external forces. And it's unclear, especially by the end, you know, who is actually doing the dreaming. And here it just feels like you are experiencing this kind of very lucid dream which is strange because it's being induced by number two and 14 it's being subverted by number six and at the same time what we're seeing is kind of out of control and it involves a huge amount of number six interacting with us as the audience and this fight between both sides on the viewpoint that we're seeing. Everything that the village wants to do is all confusing and swirly and strange. But number six just wants to 
straighten everything up and have a clear line of sight through this dream so he can actually start directing how it um, how it plays out. And then he meets a woman in a black dress and crucially this is after he straightened the mirror and therefore he is in some kind of control. I think that's very important. Now I don't know how much we should say about this woman at this point. Well, I, okay. So how can we do this? So again, yeah, we we do try not to jump ahead in the series if we can avoid it. You know, a lot of people who are listening to the podcast are uh, potentially listening along for the first time. But what is really interesting here is the character is credited as I think a party guest or something. I don't know. Uh, played by the actress Georgina Cookson. And she will appear in a later episode of the series called Many Happy Returns. Which is written by the same writer. Yeah, so Anthony Skeen did this, A, B and C, Many Happy Returns and Dance of the Dead, maybe? I think. There, there is a third one. Yeah, it might be Dance of the Dead. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the character she plays in Many Happy Returns is critical to that storyline. That's not giving away too much because obviously we actually don't know, or we can say that up front, whether it is the same character. And and like all these ITC shows, often you have the same mm. uh, actor or actress portraying multiple characters in the show. But it's very interesting that this character appears. We won't give away too much, although her name in a later episode is Mrs. Butterworth. That doesn't give away anything. And again, in a link to Shattered Visage, uh, Mrs. Butterworth is a character who is uh, referenced in that comic book as well. So, you know, I was talking about how there are strange links between A, B and C and Shattered Visage. I think mm. that's just another one where they've chosen to bring a character in from the expanded universe of this episode, maybe. Yeah, because it, it did make me wonder if maybe as well as this episode coming after the general, if they both should come after many happy returns in the chronology because is 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 he effectively inserting her into this dream you don't know how much control he has over who he's seeing but the fact that he references having seen b in a dream the previous night yeah implies that he could be in a position where he is able to bring people into the dream who he wants to um, and it could be a character, obviously, who he's met before within yeah. the universe of the series. So one could imagine that if he were to meet this character in Many Happy Returns, he could then be in a position to introduce her himself. Mm. So anyway, the, what she does in this episode... <laughs> We're going to have exactly the same conversation when we do Many Happy Returns, but we don't have to be so obscure about it, I suppose. <laughs> Um, but basically she tries to um, sort of uh, proposition him to sell out his secrets or, or whatever it is that, that people who are trying to get him to sell out think that he has to sell and when he expresses an interest uh, she gives him one of her diamond earrings and tells him to put it on the roulette wheel on number six so I'm sure it's your lucky number so he goes over to the roulette wheel. He puts the earring on number six. The roulette wheel comes up, number six. And his winnings that are returned to him is a key. Yeah. So he, he picks this key up, slightly confused. 
and as he walks away from the table uh, a matching key is being held by Madame Angadine herself (laughs) (laughs) and this sends two into an absolute frenzy because he thinks he has unmasked C and that C is in fact the uh, the the French person who was at Madame Angadine's parties who is C yeah whether he believes it or not he's so desperate to have the answer that he he'll believe anything at this point yeah and it's clear that you know six knows that he can do whatever he wants as yeah. well he can basically get he can basically bend two to his will he knows that two is on edge and uh he's breaking him this time rather than the other way around yeah and six has read the file or what what little information was in the c file when he was in the lab so he knows what they know about C, which is that they're French, they were known to be at Angadine's parties. So he can invent someone who fits that bill, who his audience will potentially buy as being mm. C. He can just play with them. Um, I mean, maybe Madame Angadine was a super spy. We have no idea. Mm. But the important thing is that he can he can make it so that she fits the bill and they will believe it. Mm. So in essence, he is, whereas they're presenting things to him uh, that he is meant to believe, he is presenting things to them that they are meant to believe. Mm. So it's some, yeah, it's some weird, crazy stuff happening <laughs> in the dream world. So number two exclaims that Madame Angadine has fooled them for years, but not anymore. And when 14 asks if they're going to bring her to the village, he's like, well, yes, <laughs> of course we are. So so clearly they are able to reach out and grab anyone they want. Mm. But they're obviously selective because they didn't just go out and grab A and B mm. and bring them to the... Or maybe they did and didn't get anything from them. We don't know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But yeah, once they've got her in their sights, he's very clear that you know, the natural course of action is to bring her to the mm. village. That's That's the standard procedure now. Yeah, and more specifically, it's the... S- it's seemingly the standard procedure for spies. Mm. So again, yeah, we don't know what's... I mean, it, well, it's strange because it's unclear if this dream world is an accurate representation of number six's former life. In a strange kind of way, there are many situations where he could be interacting with spies as some high-level government employee, mm. but he doesn't necessarily have to be a spy himself. He He simply has... Um, well, in the crudest way possible, he is presenting to number two the idea that he literally has information written down in a file, <laughs> uh, which he has from London. Again, tying back to the fact that's where his superiors worked, or still work, I suppose. You know, he likes to he likes to almost lull his uh, number two that he's facing uh, into a false sense of security by presenting him with actually quite basic facts sometimes almost mm. to really patronize him and condescend mm. him knowing that the number two is so desperate to get the information that they'll believe anything and that's usually the moment in an episode of the prisoner when you realize that he has one up on them if indeed that is how an episode is uh, structured in many you don't have any moment like that he just gets caught um you know in a web of a village intrigue but it's interesting here that the way he plays the game is to really be a few steps ahead, which was something that was introduced in uh, in Chimes when he's obviously building this thing in 
you know, trying to make this raft and trying to do it with a view to getting away. Mm. But then as uh, Six and Angadine approach the door with their pair of keys, and he's saying that he's certain he wants to go, um, he has some kind of seizure mm. uh, in the real world and everything swirls and, and collapses into nothing. Mm. So again, 14 seems to want to end the experiment because he's being pushed too far. But two is convinced that he's onto something. He has to know more. It's not enough to know that Madame Angadine was see or to believe it. Uh, he has to know what's in that envelope tucked into Six's tuxedo jacket. Um, so he insists that they carry on and bring him back. And when he does come back, he and Angadine are, are sitting in a car driving down, forgive me, I don't know the name of the road that has the Arc de Triomphe on, it's probably incredibly famous. Um, and I feel like an idiot for not knowing what it is because I've been there. Um, but anyway, they're driving along, they've got the, some nice back-projected Arc de Triomphe in the background, <laughs> so you know that they're in Paris. But, but what I love and what I think is so crucial is that the, the footage they've chosen to project for the Arc de Triomphe it's not nighttime, it's dusk, and the sky is purple. It's mm. a huge purple sky behind them, and it's it's that purple again. But it, it wasn't dusk before, it was night before. When they were at the party, it was night outside. They've been there for hours. And yet, when he comes back, when they bring him back into this hallucinogenic state after he's collapsed, the sky is completely purple, like the purple that you would only get briefly at sunset. Mm. And that's the footage of Paris that they chose to project behind him as, as they're driving along. And watching them drive, you see this lovely exchange between 2 and 14, where 2 is, is, is so excited. Um, he's, he's like a puppy chasing after a ball at this <laughs> point. Um, he thinks he's going to get the biggest pat on the head ever when he comes back with this information, mm. that he's going to find out everything, that there's another person, there's someone that Angeline is taking him to see. There's... There's a fourth person they didn't know about. And he's so excited, he he's not really thinking straight. And I, I, I really love 14 in this episode. She's so wry sometimes, and I love the way she just slightly sarcastically says, oh, we'll have to call him D. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you can tell that she's just a bit fed up with number two's behaviour at this point. Yeah, he's, he's completely desperate. And this is clearly the... You know the consequence of the pressure he's being put under by his superiors uh, to do this, and the fact that now he's willing to actually do something that would be potentially fatally harmful <laughs> to uh, to number six. Uh, it's interesting. That's you know that's how much he's willing to risk everything on this. So clearly he's been pushed to the edge. Again, placing this in the context of a a further on interaction with number six you know in the series and you know obviously uh, after the general but yeah he's i mean it's a wonderful performance it's a guy cracking up and he's breaking he's breaking under the pressure of uh trying to crack number six and it you know it's just so so nice that all this time like you say 14 is fully aware that these things have to be treated with caution i think she senses something is up but number two thinks that he's done it, that he's won, that he's going to find out everything and there'll be some big reveal. So the car pulls up outside a castle, which, is it where the art exhibition was? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's from that shot that you really see. I mean, it is, 
you know, in the previous broadcast episode, Chimes of Big Ben, he was uh, walking in uh, and out with Nadia. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, the skies are, are kind of are much bluer now, almost as if it's now dawn or something, or or early evening. But the, the time is completely screwy. The sky is completely the wrong colour. But clearly, two is too far gone to notice that there's mm. something really wrong with this. So Madame Angadine tells him to uh, to go through the door and that uh, the person he's meeting will know who he is. Mm. And then he goes through, and whereas there are bluing skies behind him, through the door is a pitch black street. It's a mm. really wonderful sort of cut back and forth between the two. Yeah, it reminds me of those bits uh, in season three of Twin Peaks when uh, Cooper is looking through the red curtains yeah. and he kind of steps into other parts of the world, shall we say, or, <laughs> or universe that he's in. And even that bit in the actual finale, part 18 of uh, of season three, where he's uh, driving and you see those bits where it's switching between mm. day and night and it's it's all to do with his his sort of own conscious experience being layered upon you know the actual physical experience that he's um that he's going through at the time um it's wonderful how you know you, you know how they would even on a tv episode like this shoot something so cleverly and so cinematically i think and how they would deal with the ideas of the dream world of you know inside number six it's not a lazily directed episode it's mm. it's really incredible that they they really took a lot of care um although admittedly it's it's probably um patrick mcgoon scaring the crap out of a director <laughs> to make sure he didn't you know he didn't uh, screw it up <laughs> or else we'd have probably taken over so on this darkened street the clock strikes four must be four in the morning now and he encounters someone who's dressed like the phantom of the opera uh, for some strange reason um, but with a mask over his face <laughs> a, a, like a stocking kind of mask yeah. over his but face but you can still see the outline of a pair of spectacles underneath yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Six says I've been dying to see you hmm. um, and he's literally dying to see him because <laughs> in the real world back in the lab he's out on the verge of death on <laughs> the table the first flashes that there's something very wrong with this guy apart from the fact that he's dressed like the phantom of the opera is that the lining of his cape is bright red mm. and you see these flashes of red and it's just a warning but this time it's not a warning to six it's, it's a, warning a warning to yeah. someone else but six insists that he has to uh, reveal this mysterious man's identity mm. and they, they have a they have an exchange where um Six says, I don't like secrets, which is ironic because this entire show is about him keeping a secret from everybody and refusing to tell it. But he, he starts to insinuate that they're, that he's not alone. Um, and he says, we mustn't disappoint them, the people who are watching. Mm. Meaning 2 and 14 back in the lab. But it gets so meta at this point because 2 is in the position of desperately wanting to know the identity of this mysterious masked person. Mm. And the audience kind of is too. So we are in some ways in the position of number two, watching this drama unfold on a screen that has come out of the mind of Patrick McGowan, while on screen two is desperately watching for the resolution and revealing <laughs> the identity of someone on screen 
in a manufactured drama that has come from the mind of number six. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's very well explained, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it makes my head hurt when I think about it. <laughs> I, I go back to my happy chuckle block place. <laughs> um, yeah, so the, the big reveal and the, uh, the mysterious phantom of the opera is number two himself. Yeah, it's cool that he sort of rips the stocking off and you see the back of his head and then he kind of he has quite a dramatic reveal to the camera just to almost add a bit more oomph to the reveal to to number two that all along he you know he's been manipulating uh, the C part of uh, of the dream certainly mm. and uh, it's interesting that you hear the gasp of number 14 when this is revealed but the look on um, number two's face I mean that's crushing he knows that his fate is sealed at that point. Mm. Yeah, it's it's kind of like a magician revealing the end of a magic trick to a shell-shocked audience, mm. except it's not a rabbit being pulled out of a hat. It's a uh, surprise. Uh, your superiors are probably going to torture and kill you now, <laughs> whatever they do to number twos when they fail. <laughs> so then six goes back to the doors he came through and when he throws them open this time he can see out over the village mm. where he's been all along in his own mind um and there's this wonderful blame game that almost immediately begins between two and 14 where 14 said you know he knew all the time he was playing with you not playing with us mm. she says he was playing with you and two says our drug failed it's, it's like he's instinctively trying to spread the blame around a little bit. But 14's not having any of it. And she says, no, he succeeded. He, succeed, he succeeded in winning. He beat you. Hmm. It's like she's taking a step back and saying, you know what? It's ain't my fault. I told you to stop. <laughs> What's actually quite a unique feature of 14 in this episode is that she is the pseudo-accomplice or assistant to number two. But she's one of the few who is independent of everything she is doing her job and it's unclear if it's under the orders of number two or actually under the orders of the actual superiors who are who are running the whole village if there you know if there is one or many people and she is doing her job as a scientist to create this drug that's gonna you know allow dream manipulation etc but you're right she completely dissociates herself from the act of using it specifically on number six and certainly the outcome to her is probably a positive result in light of the drug actually working but uh, its efficacy in revealing uh, why number six resigned um, that's just the outcome of the experiment mm. and that you know as a scientist she probably doesn't worry about the actual result whereas for number two that was the only thing that mattered it was the by any means necessary he didn't care how it was done mm. uh, so the result to him is everything and in that respect uh, everything is a failure now yeah whereas for her this is proof of concept yeah. it does work and yeah. you can influence people's dreams yeah. in that way which ties into you know all those things we were saying earlier about all these strange experiments happening in the hospital lots of people are just doing weird experiments there sanctioned by the village but they're not necessarily doing it with the sole purpose of manipulating number six. They're doing it just to further 
at the aims of the village, whatever they are. And then there's that mind-blowing moment where Six, still in the dream, but he's left the party dream state, well, he's left the Paris dream state and entered into the village dream state and walks straight to the doors of the lab, straight down, and they're clearly flummoxed because they didn't know that he knew that the lab was even there. And it's that incredible moment where he, he walks up to the door, automatic doors, and they open. And they turn around to look to see if he's coming. And he's lying on the on the table right in front of them. But they're so shell-shocked, they actually turn and look at their own door to see if dream state number six is going to walk through yeah. it. it. It's the, the line between what is real and what is not is gone. Mm. But he walks through the dream state lab to speak to 14 and yet another dream state number two, the second mm. dream state number two that we've had, but this time not dressed like the Phantom of the Opera. Um, or the Phantom Pie Flinger, whatever he <laughs> <it> was called. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Phantom Flan Flinger. Flan Flinger, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he hands to the uh, envelope, the mysterious envelope from his pocket. Yeah, and still number two thinks he's going to get the answers. <laughs> he still thinks that, you know, number six resigned because he was about to sell out. And he believes that even though he has just seen that he was the character of D in this whole thing, and he knows that that can't be true, he still believes that the contents of the envelope are related to the reasons for his resignation. And they will be the secrets that would have been sold were he to uh, resign and have sold out, you know, to one of these people. But the best thing about this is when that envelope opens and it's just a series of travel brochures and number 14 says something like, oh, he was just going on holiday. And then number six, again, conversing with the dream state versions of 14 and two, but actually because he's on the screen is actually addressing the real versions of, 14 and 2 in the lab even though the real version of 6 is currently unconscious um, on the gurney next to them. He basically says yeah this wasn't the reason why I resigned. I wasn't selling out. The way he delivers that is it's just it's very matter of fact but it's just a way of saying you were so off base in thinking this and if you go back to the very beginning of the episode number 2 He's working on the principle that this this is the idea. That what, what was going on was Six resigned because he was going to sell off his secrets or his information to some other third party, I suppose. And he's so convinced of it that, that he's willing to, you know, push up the experiment and now go to these lengths of trying to get the information. And it's wonderful how number six says, yeah, you were wrong from the very beginning. I mean, <laughs> fundamentally, there was a flaw in this whole plan. It was never going to work because uh, that wasn't the reason why I resigned. And it's interesting because it doesn't even... It's not like through the process of elimination you can figure out what the resignation was about for somebody like number two. It just it just says, no, this has nothing to do with what you think. And it shows how they're just on different levels. Number six is way, way ahead of the curve on this. And it leaves number two looking even more of a sort of dejected fool at the end of it. And another thing I like about the brochures, and it only dawned on me as I was watching the episode of the podcast, was that it's a series of brochures, 
for I think it's like Greece, Italy, but it's interesting. They're all uh, these Mediterranean countries whose architecture heavily influences and is infused in the village. It's a selection mm. of brochures, isn't it? Yeah, for yeah. all these different places. And he's like, oh, this is where I was going. And that's even more meta because it's clear that from within his dream, he's saying, this is where I've ended up. But we know that every episode begins with him, you know, in the opening credits, uh, going back to his house and, uh, you know, he gets his tickets his passport and he has that picture of the beach and the palm tree you know and the suggestion is he was going some other place you know a place with sun sea palm trees and that but here the the holiday that he claims he's going on is to one with all these different architectures which are found in the village i think Mm. it's a lovely meta reference but also one again just rubbing salt in the wound of of number two (laughs) And then it ends as the red phone of doom rings once more and everyone takes another drink. (laughs) That phone does appear a lot. He drinks a lot of milk and there's a lot of red phone appearance in this. And I think if you're playing the prisoner drinking game, my goodness, congratulations if you make it to the end of the episode, even remotely sober. So that's it for our mammoth roundup of A, B and C. Uh, Thanks for sticking with us. We've got lots more still to come. Um, We've got a few bonus segments. Um, Later on, we're going to be having our chat with Ian Meadows about the episode. And we've got our news roundup from Rick Davey coming up too. But first, we want to talk about this episode Nocturne from Counter-Strike that Andrew Pixley mentioned and its potential connections to A, B and C. We cannot afford a human breakthrough, least of all now. What is the nature of this breakthrough? Mental engineering. We don't like that. We want them to stay as mad as they are. Sounds to me vaguely philosophical and therefore repugnant to me. As we mentioned earlier, a friend of the podcast, Andrew Pixley, got in touch to tell us about the fact that Anthony Skeen, who wrote A, B and C, repurposed the script in some form when he wrote uh, for a different television series I think in 1969 so a couple of years after Prisoner uh, it was a TV show called Counter-Strike in the episode Nocturne yeah so there's very little information out there about this show it aired in 1969 and there are some reports out there that suggest it was in development as early as 1966 but got delayed because they were screening a US show called The Invaders that had a kind of similar premise. Is that the one with um, what's his name? Uh, Roy Thinnes. That mm. one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So the, the idea of Counter-Strike is there's uh, an alien plot against the Earth um, effectively the earth is caught between two warring alien factions and there's one alien faction that wants to use the earth as a, a kind of staging ground to attack the other alien faction in their, in their territory and the earth is largely um, unaware that any of this is happening and the hero is this guy who 
looks human but is actually from the second alien faction and has been sent to Earth to try and foil this plot. Hmm. I've, I've never seen any of the other episodes. I, we watched about five minutes of Nocturne because that's all you can find on YouTube. <laughs> um, it turns out that most of the episodes are lost, sadly, as a lot of um, shows from that time where they got wiped from the archives of the BBC. And Counter-Strike was one of the very last things that was aired in black and white. This was just before BBC One went mm. colour. So, obviously, whether it was filmed in colour or not, I presume not, but it, the only copies of it that exist are in black and white. I think the first five episodes survive. There's one episode that was never aired because it got bumped for some documentary mm. from BBC One, and then they just never bothered airing it. Presum- now it's gone? Or- now it's gone. <laughs> Because presumably they're about to, t- they're literally about to turn to colour, mm. so they didn't want to keep showing this black and white show. So they just, once it was gone from the schedule, they never rescheduled it. <laughs> so no one ever saw it. Mm. So there's no hope of there being a, a home video copy mm. somewhere. Um, and it's gone from the archives. So the, presumably the only people who've ever seen this are the people who worked on it. And it's, it's such a shame to think that, you know, that an episode is something that people put so much effort into is just gone up in smoke never to be seen again so in this clip what are the main aspects which show that this is a repurposed version of the original was it the concept or even aspects of the uh, of the plot for a b and c I and mean, that sounds like a completely different premise <laughs> yeah so this episode i think it was the only episode of Counter-Strike written by Anthony Skeen. I think they only made 12 or 13 episodes mm. altogether. It only lasted one season. Um, and it obviously aired after The Prisoner. So it's presumably him reworking the idea. Um, unless he already cited working on the idea before The Prisoner. It's, it's hard to know. But presumably he worked on this afterwards. And the, from the bit that you can see on YouTube, essentially the... Um, there's, there's two guys in an office who are on the side of the bad guy aliens, as we understand it, who are talking about the fact that there's been some human breakthrough, some scientific breakthrough that they're unhappy with because they don't want that to progress. And they think that they can foil this breakthrough while at the same time taking down this guy simon who is actually the agent from the other alien faction who is trying to protect the earth in the clip you never actually see simon it's just these two guys mm. talking but there's a shot at one point of what looks like several syringes with some drug in which is obviously very reminiscent mm. of a b and c now, most information i've been able to find out about the episode is from the bbc genome website which has uh, copies of all the TV and radio times listings <laughs> for the BBC going back just decades and decades to the dawn of radio listings, basically. And on the 29th of September, 1969... Which is two years after the uh, premiere of the original show. Yeah, it is. Yeah, 29th of September. I thought that, I thought that date rang a bell on BBC One at ten past nine. Counter-Strike, Nocturne, starring John Finch and Sarah Brackett, written by Anthony Skeen. The madman lives in a no-man's land, a borderline between fantasy and reality, where the real becomes unreal, the unreal real, and life itself is a waking nightmare. Simon finds himself living in such a nightmare, 
Has he gone mad or is he merely suffering from temporary delusions? Above all, why should he want to kill a perfect stranger? And there's there's something in that clip, that five minute clip, of the, the two bad guys talking in the office, where they talk about this breakthrough being some kind of mind manipulation or something like that. So it's, it's because we haven't been able to watch the whole episode, mm. and I'm not even sure how you would watch the whole episode, but it seems like the breakthrough is probably that drug mm. and that they're going to use it as a weapon to um, to attack this Simon guy mm. um, and maybe try and get him to kill whoever invented it. I don't know. I'd love to know what actually happens. Mm. I've scoured everywhere and I can't find an episode mm. synopsis anywhere. So if you've watched this episode and you know what actually happens in it, please get in touch with us. I'd love to know you know how many similarities there are um you know does he get attacked with the multiple repeat doses of the drug and start to be unable to tell Mm. what's real and what isn't um you can imagine it going that way written by the same guy and and those are the overlapping concepts so obviously the rest of it alien invasion is completely different much bigger questions than you know is number six john drake (laughs) (laughs) And at, at, right at the end of the clip that's on YouTube, um, just as these two guys finish talking, they mention the fact that this Simon guy is at home, but he's also not really at home, and he's not relaxing, and he's at a party. And they switch on a monitor, and there's the image of his house, or a house anyway, with a party going on inside, and you kind of like hear party noises. And they're watching it through the monitor, which is very A, B, and C. So yeah, it, presumably at least some of it takes place in a party. Maybe one of Madame Ongadine's ones. <laughs> you wonder if people watching it at the time realised what it was, or if any of the people working on Counter Strike thought, "Hang on a minute, <laughs> I'm sure I saw this on the Prisoner a couple of years ago." <laughs> I do wonder what somebody as protective of the show as McGowan would have thought about the fact that the script for one of the episodes of The Prisoner was being used in another TV show like I know he wouldn't have well he probably wouldn't have a a right to block anything if it was sufficiently different but he's the kind of person who you can imagine being quite annoyed by something like that yeah although to be fair at that point he was probably hiding in America mm-hmm. <laughs> um and I, you know, I don't know if this was ever shown anywhere other than the BBC. Presumably not, because otherwise there might be a better chance of copies existing. Yeah. Um, it's it's one of those really sad things. Like I was saying earlier about Chocoblock, that was, you know, that was from as recently as the eighties, mm. and they've lost most of the episodes because they just didn't value them or think that anyone would want them. It's quite sad. Yeah. So thank you, Andrew, for pointing this out. It was a nice little tangent that you've sent us on, and uh, it's really interesting to to know how some of these things link up uh, so we've been thinking in terms of uh you know the mrs butterworth connection between two episodes written by anthony skeen and actually it's it's interesting that you know the you know the script for a b and c was repurposed in another show entirely so we recently had the chance to catch up with Ian Meadows, 
who's a, a writer, a sound designer. Um, he does a lot of work for Big Finish, including his work on the prisoner audio dramas that they've done. And A, B and C is his favourite episode of The Prisoner. So we had uh, a good chat with him about why he loves the episode, why it's such a standout episode of the series for him. And uh, let's listen to that. Information. Information. So we're delighted to be joined this time by writer, broadcaster, sound designer and occasional cravat wearer Ian Meadows. Hello. Hi. How are you? <laughs> Thank you for joining us again. It's my great pleasure. Always a pleasure to talk about The Prisoner. Uh, we're here to talk about the episode A, B and C. And on our 50th anniversary episode where we talked about all the things that Big Finish is up to with you and Nick Briggs, uh, you told us that A, B and C was one of your favourite Prisoner episodes. Yeah, if not my favourite, actually. I mean, I love some of the others, but I, there is something about ABC which has always stuck with me. I mean, The Girl Who Was Deaf is a great episode and it's bonkers. And I hope that Nick uh, someday actually does adapt that. But there is something about ABC which s sticks with me. Um, and there are so many little moments in ABC as well, including one which, if you pick up on it, um, it's just brilliant. It's like... A revelation it's one of those moments where you smack your head and go oh you know and whether it was done deliberately or whether it was just one of those quirks of casting it's just a brilliant moment um do remind me to come back to that mm -hmm. there we are there's a there's a classic tease <laughs> <laughs> it's only a tease if we remember to come back to it yeah please, please do because i'm just you know i have to tell people this you know because i don't know whether other people have noticed it you know um and i do remember talking to nick about it and he was um uh, well, if he had noticed it and he's um, worked it into his series, then, and I kind of think he has, then he is he's even more of a genius than we already thought he was. So, you know, but it's, I mean, maybe I should talk about it now. Who knows? Well, should I? No, no, let, let's wait. Let's do, it <laughs> let's do it later. Yeah, so what is it about the episode that makes it a standout one for you amongst all the Prisoner episodes? Well, there are so many moments. I think the performances for a start, are delightful. Um, I mean, who doesn't like a party, as number 14 mm -hmm. says, you know? Uh, and, and it is great. Uh, you see Peter Bowles turn up, and that interchange between him and Patrick McGowan is brilliant, especially when they're going, Madame's wine is so wonderful, you know, and, you know, um, you know, what have you got to sell? I'm anxious to find out. All of that, that whispering, flirtatious interaction between those two characters is wonderful. Um, it's a good old action romp as well you know the party it takes you into the world that six must have inhabited i mean you could have a very healthy debate i'm sure whether that's danger man whether that's not danger man but you know it's that good old-fashioned spy adventure and then there's the other thing is that about halfway through um they they give the ending away because in any in, in any drama and i suppose it's it's more the case now than it was then there's an element of will the hero succeed? Um, will the hero maybe be bumped off? I mean, now, you know, if you've got a show like Game of Thrones or if they did the prison now, who knows? I mean, you know, everything is is up for grabs. So in this one, they kind of tell you halfway through that six has already won. And then it's the pleasure of watching six play two and actually break two. It's how is he going to do that? How is six now going to break 
number two rather than vice versa and i think that's that's a very clever little twist and it's done in such a subtle way that you don't actually realize until you know maybe months after you think oh yes they just twist you know they flipped that um and in fact it, it kind of brings into your mind you know another debate is actually the series not about number six trying to be broken by number two is it about all those number twos going up against number six as some kind of training program to see how well they would survive how they would adapt to a situation where they're, they're dealing with somebody who's cleverer than they are um and i think it's just wonderful and there's that even though you know six has won so you know you could turn off the episode and go off and do something else in the happy knowledge that six will be there next week because that's how these series work the joy of watching it is because you want to know what's going to happen especially where you get to those last few scenes and there is this mystery figure in a mask and you're with number two going take it off you know find out who it is you know and then there's the surprise uh, and along the way, Six is implicating all kinds of people who may or may not be part of, uh, you know, this this conspiracy. But it's it's just it's all of those things rolled up into a, a fabulous episode. I think it's very very well written. It moves along at such a br brisk pace, and you know, at the end of it, you you just um, you don't think an hour has gone by because it's it's really engrossed you. So that's that's why I love it. And then there's the cast thing which you know i might as well say now there is a moment in that party where mrs butterworth crops up you know and so yeah you've noticed that but a lot of people don't you see and then you think oh mrs butter you know and it's like mind blown isn't it it's that moment of, of brilliant casting where mrs butterworth gives him the earring and says you know bet it on number six at the roulette table and the key comes out so it's it's all of that you know uh, one thing that you brought up was the fact that it might relate to potentially what uh, Number Six's former life was about. And this is something I find quite interesting in the series because they're very clear that they they don't want to talk too much about what it was Number Six did. But here it does appear that he was involved in some kind of high-level spy work as well, certainly in terms of the people who he's interacting with as well. So what are your views on how they um, play with giving us some new information about number six as background in this episode. Well, I don't think, I think they, they were very clever because they, they uh, I think the expression is they, they uh, you can tell all and yet reveal nothing, which is what they did through, through the series. So you're not really getting any extra information because we know that he was a spy and in that classic mold of television spies and James Bond, um, we know that it's going to be, um, a field agent who gets his hands dirty, uh, but I think what they what they are clever in doing is reminding you that actually the prisoner can be an action series as well as that more cerebral thing, um, which has kept people more entertained, if you like. But I, I think people still like a, a, a bit of action because otherwise, you know, adventure series can get a bit dull. So I don't think they bring anything new especially to the party i think they just dress it up in a different way and remind you that you know yeah you're watching a spy at work um in the mold that we think of spies because i'm sure that spies don't really act like that you know um and if they did they'd be noticed wouldn't they which would make them rubbish spies <laughs> so 
but it, you know, it is nice. I think it's always nice to see McGowan in those action moments. Um, so it's nothing new, but it's just dressed up in a different way. I think the one interesting element that it does bring to the show quite heavily. I mean, this is episode three. If you follow the UK broadcast order, is a heavy dose of proper science fiction into the world mm. of the prisoner. Yeah, and quite ahead of its time as well because it's a female who is in charge of this you know and, and you've got to take this the show in the context of the time which is the 1960s and so you know it was very heavily male-led um but here you have number 14 who is a female protagonist and you know a genius and she's the one who's doing all the cooking up of the experiments and she's the one who's manipulating um, but the science fiction is wonderful. I mean, a machine where they can present number six, they can put him into a situation and then they can bring people in. And even in one case, I think with uh, with B, where she starts putting words into B's mouth. Yeah, it is wonderful, you know, and um, I guess you'd call it virtual reality, wouldn't you? But yeah, I think it's it's a very strong element of the episode. And at, at that time, it must have been so... Fa- I mean, it's still fantastical today, but must have been one of those mind-blown moments back when people were watching it in uh, in 67. I think w- w- what the other thing that this episode does is it, it, it puts the prisoner into an area where everybody can enjoy it. Because let's put it this way, not everybody would have appreciated the nuances of the prisoner and it was quite an intellectual show um on a channel which let's face it probably wasn't putting out the most intellectual of you know intellectual fair for people to consume so you know it's an everyman episode it, it it can be all things to all people but the science fiction element is just it's still brilliant actually it's still i think a very very good idea What's your view on Colin Gordon as as number two? How does he how does he rank in your in your list of uh, favourite number twos? And everyone always goes for Liam McKern as their favourite, but uh... well, I think um, he's the only one who's done more than one appearance, isn't he? I think. Oh, uh, Liam McKern has done. Yeah, Liam McKern did did um, what two, maybe three, three, yeah, it, yeah. yeah, three, and and Colin Gordon did two, yeah. This and the general, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's, I think he's. I think he is a very underrated number two because he's more dangerous than he's more dangerous than he appears. Although in this episode he's definitely on edge. You know, he's he's a man who's drinking a lot of milk. <laughs> you know, and he is a man who is you know under pressure to get answers. But what what is so chilling about him is, is he comes across as he could be your art teacher, and yet here he is controlling all this evil stuff which is going on this manipulation this uh tearing down of of number six's sanity and then introducing elements that hopefully will lead him to the answers that he needs and he's willing to push it you know 14 is saying you know he's he can't really take too much of this and he's all for pushing on after a um and she says no he's got to have rest and you can see the frustration there um and i i think it's i think it's a good performance the thing is, he's quite a likable character. And that's the other thing. Number two, it really does... De- the whole show and the chemistry of any show depends on you liking the characters so you can emotionally invest. And uh, it's a likable performance. Um, there have been some number twos that, you know, I really didn't get... I didn't get on with Patrick Cargill's uh, particularly. Um, so it was a pleasure when he was completely broken. But I suppose <laughs> that's that's the genius of acting, isn't it? But... 
I think it's because he is quite likable, but it, it it comes as such a shock when you know he is stitched up thoroughly by number six. But yeah, it's a great performance. I, I think he yeah he's right up there. Uh, Darren Nesbitt was another great uh, number two. I think you know so Liam McKern, Darren Nesbitt, um, who was very cool. I seem to recall. Uh, yeah, and um, and Colin Gordon. I think that you know they're they're all good performances. It's always interesting when you have an antagonist who you start to feel a little bit of sympathy for. Every time he glances at that red phone in yeah. absolute terror of it ringing, <laughs> you do yeah. feel a little bit sorry for him, despite everything that he's doing. And there's that lovely touch of comedy where he picks it up and it's so huge. It's this massive, <laughs> it's so out of proportion. But that is wonderful. You know, that is, that's a phone that belongs to number one. You know, <laughs> and, and you know it. Um, but yeah, it's, there's lots of lovely touches. I mean, it's a very nuanced performance. I think the milk, you know, is, is that must have been rank on set because you think how hot the studio lights must have made it. But, you know, he's, he's drinking, you know, glass after a glass of milk and, you know, he is becoming a nervous wreck. And I think one of my favourite parts of the episode is where he comes up in the chair, slightly dishevelled from a bad night's sleep. You know, and he calls number six an irritating man or worse to that effect because he's always walking. And it is true. And number six must be, a, a, you know, a really difficult individual to, uh, you know, to break, to get to know, to like. Um, so, yeah, you do have sympathy for him. But, yeah, there's there's a, a nice nuanced bit of comedy in there as well, I think. We don't want to go too far into spoiler territory, but Colin Gordon does appear as a number two in a later episode. Mm. Have you... Uh, thought much about the the order of events that take place in those two uh, well I, I certainly think because if i'm right abc comes before the episode yeah that that he's that we're talking about the general isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. i think it should be flipped because it, it definitely seems yeah it definitely seems that they sh it, that it should run the general than abc but, you know, it's the same with a lot of series that ITV used to do. It's like The Professionals. The final episode was supposed to be an ambiguous ending. So you didn't know whether they survived. And ITV then broadcast it out of order. So, you know, the final episode or the, the episode that became the final episode made no sense at all. So, and it's the same with, you know, other shows like Robin of Sherwood, you know, where they mix up. And that's, that's the problem of ITV's schedulers. I think if you restored it to the order that they originally thought it would go out in it would make a lot more sense um unless of course he's a clone i mean that's a possibility i suppose but i definitely feel that it's the general and then abc but there we are that's the vagaries of tv scheduling isn't it <laughs> i think what melts my brain a little bit with this episode whenever i try and think about it is that we're watching on a screen a fictional story that has largely come from the brain of Patrick McGowan, in which the people who run the village are watching fictional stories on a screen from the mind of number six. And then he knows that they're watching and therefore crafts the story that he wants them to see, while all the time we're watching the story that they have crafted that they want to it's like an infinite feedback loop that makes my mind hurt. 
You can imagine the pitch meeting, can't you? When they were when they were trying to explain how it was going to play out. But yeah, that is a it's great, isn't it? I mean, it's layer upon layer. It's like an onion. It's like peeling back different things. But I, I mean, it's just I mean, Six is such a single-minded character that you know he can actually do that. He can sort of once he's sussed out what's going on, um, and as I say, halfway through the episode, they've given the ending away. He's going to beat them, and it's just you know how he beats them and the way he flips the story so that. You know, in the end, all they end up is with travel brochures, you know, um, rather than this big idea that he might have been selling out, which, of course, you know, we know is not true. It's not number six's style. But, yeah, it is. I mean, but all all of the prisoner episodes to a, to a greater or lesser extent are onions that you can peel. Um, but that's the other thing about ABC is that on that level it is oh, mind blown. And yet. If you just want to take it on a purely superficial level, it's just a great action show. You know, it's a great action episode and uh, plenty of champagne and, you know, fantastic looking people and intrigue. So it's got something for everybody, I think. Now, going back to what you were saying at the, at the start about the way that the episode is uh, structured, it's kind of more action orientated uh, segments as well. It is unusual, but in these first three episodes, we have. Arrival, which is, I think, still one of the f finest uh, first episodes of a TV mm. show ever in terms of setup and explaining where the premise is going. We have The Chimes of Big Ben, which is, although it's possibly not meant to be the original second episode, you know, it's a caper involving Six potentially getting out, but then actually using that as a way to reveal how powerful the village is and actually recreating something that's going to confuse them and play around with them that way. Then we've got this, which is. Like you say, it's got a few different themes. It mixes action, science fiction. It's got more of a story that's about number six taking on number two. I mean, it's it's clearly uh, a sign that however the episodes are meant to be uh, broadcast or, or watched, um, every episode is, I mean, you know, it just plays with its own structure. You mm. can do whatever it wants within the context of, um, you know, of the show. And yet you never see two episodes of The Prisoner, which are thematically the same and i think that possibly that's i mean we there's various arguments as to why the series came to an end when it did after only 17 episodes and and you know actually that last episode is i mean i love it to bits i love the bonkers nature of it but it is a mess you know i don't think that you can describe it as any as anything else you know it is it does look like it was hastily put put together but i mean that's part of its strength um and so because, going back to ABC, that's a more traditional episode, if you like, and yet it isn't at the same time because it flips and it does different things. I think maybe that's why people perhaps couldn't get a handle on it. I mean, I don't know what the... Uh, I, funnily enough, I've never investigated what the original figures, viewing figures were like. So I don't, you know, I don't know whether it was a, a huge hit. I can't imagine it being something that was a huge hit. I think it's always been something special that you know people buy into it's like a little club isn't it or quite a big club as it turns out but yeah i think because of that thematic change maybe that's why people just couldn't get a handle on it and tv execs they do like something that they can just pigeonhole quite neatly you know and you can't really do that with the prisoner and this episode in particular, why it, it, it is a favourite is, you know, as for all the reasons we've said, you can't pigeonhole this episode. It's, it's something for everyone, you know. And that's clever, really, really clever, because how many shows do that, you know? 
there are moments during the party sequences where they're all drinking champagne and he's playing roulette and they're having fights in the grounds and stuff that you can almost start to get an idea of what it would have been like if he had decided to take on the role of James Bond. But this is so much more interesting. <laughs> yeah. I don't think, you see, I don't think McGowan would have made a good Bond. Um, I think he was far too complex a character as a, as a person um, just to, to put up with, you know, because Bond, well, it's, I mean, certainly, and now it's it's a bit different, but certainly, I think in even in the Connery era, it's a fairly two-dimensional flat character, isn't it? You know, I mean, apart from the action sequences, which he would have excelled at because he's, you know, he's, McGowan is, is clearly a very good action hero. But, you know, there's there's so much more going on with, with number six, which I, I guess is why Danger Man was such a good show as well, because, you know, there were layers there as well. I mean, maybe that's us imbuing the character with things that we've taken from the prisoner or things that we know about McGowan. I don't know. But um, but Bond. Yeah. I mean, you can see it. I mean, but yeah, I don't think I don't think it it, it would have worked. But that's just a personal opinion. But yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, it's definitely there are definitely James Bond moments there, you know. But there again, it was the sixties. You'd be disappointed if there weren't, you know. <laughs> One of the things that really struck me the last time you watched the episode in that sequence that this is a really dreamy party um, where everything's starting to go a bit skewiff and he shifts the mirror and the camera angle changes is the way the sound changes, the music and the laughter in the background, everything becomes trippy and really quite disturbing and I don't really know how you would go about doing that but it's it this the sound of it is as big an influence on how unsettling that sequence is as what you're seeing on screen yeah I mean you could I mean there, there are various ways that you can mess around with sound I mean you know vary speed pitching things down pitching things up you know feeding things back on themselves uh, yeah I mean the whole the whole soundscape of the prisoner i mean it's still i'm going to say baffling in some ways to listen to it now because you you i mean just taking the case of rover for example and how they put that together you know and once you break it down into its constituent parts and you think oh yeah yeah okay i understand how they did it but actually when you put it together and you don't understand you don't know how they did it it's just completely otherworldly and terrifying you know, in the case of, of Rover, you know, um, and that's quite something considering that when you look at Rover, it doesn't look that terrifying, but the actual concept of it, when you couple it in with the sound and the fact that this thing can consume you, absorb you. Yeah. It's, uh, the sound is, is, is really important and none more so in this episode because it does go trippy and bonkers. And, you know, that just ties in so nicely with the fact that he's, under the influence, but not under the influence. You know, he's playing them at their own game. So, yeah, the sound is is superb. And still, you know, I think um, considering that they were using, you know, a mono soundtrack as well, uh, what they've managed to do is they've given it space, if you see what I mean. Because um, everything today, you know, we see it or we hear it in stereo or 5.1, and they actually managed to do that, even though it's not in stereo or 5.1 you can just kind of imagine it swirling around your head you know and that's 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 a great thing to be able to do you know i think the 5.1 mix that they've done on the network releases is brilliant 
but there is still something quite charming and exciting about listening to that original mono soundtrack. Maybe that's the purest in me, I don't know. Final comments about the episode? Yeah, I mean, I think, no, I mean, I, I, do, I do love the party sequences that I, you know, this is a dreamy party. It's just one of the best lines ever, you know, and it's done in such a, this is a dreamy party, you know, and all of that. And it's, <laughs> you know, that kind of sticks with you. Um, the way he sells out Angadine, we don't know if, you know, there's, there's anything really substantial there, but, you know, there's so many different levels of intrigue. I just think that, you know, if, if no one's watched, if somebody hasn't watched ABC, watch it with a, you know, for the first time and be amazed uh, just for the decadence as much as anything else, but just watch it for those different levels and peel back that onion. And I still think Mrs. Butterworth, when you finally notice that she's, you know, well, the actress, it's, um, what was her name? Georgina, wasn't it? Georgina Cookson. When you finally realize that she's in that episode, you know, that, that, that's a great moment where you go, Oh, you know, and was that planned? Was that a quirk of casting? We'll never know. But I think, I'd like to think that McGowan had it as a planned move, that clever, if you were clever enough to spot it, then you'd be going, yes, because it all, it all, it all kind of makes sense, doesn't it, when you connect the dots, you know. And that's the other thing I think about this, this episode, is it helps you connect certain dots. I mean, maybe, maybe even more if they showed it in the right order. Maybe, maybe less. I don't know. But it, you know, yeah, it's it's one of those. It's a standout one for me, I think. So thanks, Ian, for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Pleasure. As always, thank you for having me. Is there anything in particular that you're working on at the moment, sound design wise? Um, well, I, it's out of the bag. So I can say that we'll, uh, I'm currently sound designing uh, some of the Big Finish originals, which they're doing, which Attagirl, which is set in the uh, Second World War. It's about the uh, air transport auxiliary and the women pilots who, who flew. And um, Lou Jameson came up with the series and it's great. I mean, it's, it's very empowering. Um, it's great to be included on it because there's some fantastic stories and there's stories that we, you know, we never hear. I mean, people just never tell you about what the women did in the war. And, you know, there's always been 50% of the population who are female. They must have done something other than sew parachutes. And they bloody well did. And it's there. And, it's you know, they're great stories. So we're having fun um, sound designing that at the moment. Um, there are some other projects which I've got coming up to sound design for Big Finish. But I can't say anything about those. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, and I, there's one thing I'm writing for um, Spiteful Puppet, which is uh, Robin of Sherwood adventure so uh which i don't know when that's coming out later on this year i think that's just you know but it's it's getting there so that's what i'm up to that's exciting uh thank you again for joining us for your uh insights into one of your favorite episodes and one of our favorite episodes as well a b and c but for now from the tally ho be seeing you be seeing you information information so once again, we'd like to thank Ian for joining us to chat about A, B and C. Uh, one thing we love doing on this podcast is not just telling you how much we love The Prisoner and the specific episode we might be focusing on uh, from week to week, but also talking to people who are also big fans, experts, combinations of the two, people who are in it, people who have made it, people who think about it all the time. <laughs> it's really fun to uh, connect with people who love the show a lot and to have those kind of conversations 
with people about you know why people love certain episodes and also i you know i really like some of the theories that get thrown up when you have these conversations I and mean, i really love ian's idea that you know we view the village as a sort of system designed to break number six but i'd never considered that what we're actually seeing is a show about um uh, a training program i think as he describes it uh for various number twos who have to go up against number six in some way um i mean it's a it's a wonderful conceit and it then flips the whole series on its head completely yeah, it was a real pleasure to talk to Ian. And if you want to hear more from him about the Big Finish Productions, um, there's an episode we did last year for the 50th anniversary where we spoke to Ian and also uh, Nick Briggs from Big Finish about the prison audio dramas. So if you're interested in them, they're, they're really great ideas. They're really beautifully done. And if you want to hear more about the idea of how they came about and how they worked on them, you can find that episode on our website from last September. And now we're almost ready to sign off, but it wouldn't be an episode of the Tally Ho without the latest news from the world of The Prisoner from friend of the podcast, Rick Davey from The Unmutual. Hi, this is Rick Davey of The Unmutual website at www.theunmutual.co.uk with all the latest news from the world of The Prisoner. Jack Lowen, camera operator on the first 13 episodes of The Prisoner, has died at a nursing home in Buckinghamshire. He was 93. Responsible for much of the visual look and feel of the series, Lowen worked on the initial location shoot at Port Merion and at MGM Studios. He also worked on many other ITC series, as well as movies such as Return of the Jedi and several James Bond films. In other news, Nicholas Briggs, producer, director and writer of the Big Finish The Prisoner audio series, has confirmed that a third series will be recorded, hopefully later this year. The reimagining, which stars Mark Elstob as number six, has been well received by fans since its debut in January 2016. And finally, Port Merion's Piazza, home to so many memorable scenes in The Prisoner, is having a makeover. Slate tiles are being placed down in the village square to further protect the site from the elements. That's it from me. Join me again on the next Tally Ho podcast for all the latest news from the world of The Prisoner. Be seeing you. Yep, thanks Rick for that news update. Please do check out all the goings on at theunmutual.co.uk and also find and follow them on Twitter at Unmutual website. And thank you for sticking with us through this marathon episode. I'm sure it's not going to be the longest one that we do, but we will try and keep them shorter in the future, if we can. (laughs) There's just so much to talk about with The Prisoner. Um, And as you can tell, uh, sometimes we can't shut up about it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, thank you for listening. Uh, We'd love to hear from you, what you think of the podcast, if you've got any theories about A, B and C that you want to drop us a line with. You can find us on Twitter at TFCAA. On Facebook, Time for Cakes Nail, and our website is timeforcakesnail.com. Yeah, please do get in touch. It's lovely to have uh, all the feedback we're getting on the episode so far. Uh, we're getting lovely messages from people, and I think in a few weeks, I'm not sure when, we will be doing a sort of listener feedback episode, which might be quite fun. Well, maybe sort of around the midpoint of the uh, season, we might have a, a chance to throw out the podcast to people who are listening to uh, maybe sort of get some discussion going uh, on the podcast as well. What I should add also is that however you get the podcast, um, you might be subscribing to it directly through iTunes or Stitcher or going direct to the website. 
often what we do do is we put links to various things whether they are various tangents we talk about youtube clips of things or uh, biographies of people who are involved as guests on the show and specific web links that you might be interested in finding uh, they're all listed on our website on each episode page so do visit the website and if you click on an episode uh, you'll have not only the chance to listen to it and download it but there's always a few extra links as well that we think it might be worth you checking out yeah so thanks again for listening uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks to talk about free for all but until then be, be seeing, seeing you, you.